0: Part 1. Storybook. There are terrors known only to sailors. Beating into a howling storm, with a lee shore appearing in the distance over one's shoulder. The sickening groan of wrenching timber, one moment like the wails of the damned the next like the low moans of a woman in hard childbed. Captain Francisco de Cuellar was not unfamiliar with the sea's callous disregard for ships and the men who toiled on them. Two years earlier, he had dropped to his knees and kissed the ground after making safe harbour after a particularly terrifying crossing of the Bay of Biscay. Where under lowering skies, the sea had risen up and thrown his carrack down the long, steep face of a rogue wave. His proud ship turned into little more than a small, flat, round stone skipping across a lake for his holy saviour's amusement. Now, off the western shore of Irlanda, the Lalavia, Almirante of the Levantine Squadron was running under bare poles. Francisco stood swaying amid ships, legs spread wide for balance and one arm hooked around a mast stay, staring into seas which had become black wrought-iron mountains. He clutched his rosary clumsily in a hand shaking and numbed by the cold, and begged the Blessed Virgin to forgive his foolishness. Sailing hundreds of leagues north from Lisbon in the San Pedro in the hope of glory and riches, against speedier English warships defending their familiar home waters, and still expecting God's protection had been sinfully vainglorious. Francisco had come to this realization after surviving fireboats, musket fire, cannon, and cursed winds in the seas of la mancha god was surely not on the side of the flame-haired heretic elizabeth he was merely angry at the greed and hubris of his faithful spanish children those ships which were still seaworthy broke out from the dutch coast where they had been pinned by the wily english many cutting their anchor lines and fleeing into the open waters of the North Sea to reassemble. God's displeasure must also explain how Francisco came to be unjustly relieved of his command of the galleon San Pedro. Ending up on an undergunned, oversized converted Venetian merchant ship was divine chastisement of man's excessive pride. Through constant and fervent prayer, Francisco had made a solemn vow to dedicate himself anew to his faith, swearing to dedicate a portion of his wealth to the monastery of San Benito de Real once safely back home. Over a hundred battered ships had been chased and harried by the English as far as Scotland. Once the English turned back, the Armada had little choice but to continue its passage all the way to Shetland, luckily without serious incident, except for the loss of the Barca di Amburgo off Fair Isle. This gave Francisco hope that his prayers and supplications had been received favorably. They had then changed their bearing to the northwest, navigating the strait between Shetland and Orkney into the open North Atlantic, before changing their bearing again to the southwest, hoping for a clear run home to Spain. Hope and prayers failed. High seas, fog, mists, and constant squalls wrecked havoc, and many ships became separated from the main fleet. Now sailing mostly by dead reckoning, the crew of these ships were completely unaware that the constant wind, waves, and mighty Gulf Stream had pushed them dangerously close to the rocky coast, including the badly leaking Lalavia fast shaking on water even with a dozen of her expensive bronze cannon thrown overboard. In the final week of September, 1588, luck and the grace of God deserted three carracks of the 11th squadron, the La Lavia, La Juliana, and Santa Maria de Visium. Caught in another North Atlantic storm, the three ships attempted to lie at anchor and weather it out a mile or two off the northwest coast of Ireland. But on the fifth day, the wind and seas grew so severe that no anchor line could hold them. The massive rocky headland of Mullock Moor appeared out of nowhere from the spray-shrouded sea ahead, like some ancient leviathan god. Men soon cried out for Jesus and their mothers, as the next monstrous wave rose to twice the height of Lalavia's mainmast. The greatest of these waves lifted and carried all three ships half a mile distance, in only two breaths, leaving them high and dry atop rocks which were only seconds before deep underwater. Rocks now transformed into black limestone cliffs with a thousand white waterfalls. The next wave arrived, knocking them over and snapping the rudder of the Santa Maria, before dragging all three ships back off the rocks and into the roiling hellish waters. The sound of splintering masts and cracking keels piercing the din. Hurled from the deck, Francisco was plunged into the cold water, frantically flailing until spotting what looked like a large wooden hatch floating nearby. Clambering upon it, he lay on his stomach, coughing and gasping. By fate, miracle, or ill-luck, all three ships avoided being completely broken apart on the rocks of Mullockmoor. Now unable to be steered and with most crew overboard, the ships were carried another league or two farther south, beyond another rocky headland, where they were blown onto the long sandy shore at Strygia in the land of Carbra. Here, too, the waves were merciless, and within an hour, all three ships lay broken in pieces. Wind and current had carried Francisco the same way, and still a few hundred yards from shore, he surveyed a scene of horror. The bodies of hundreds of drowned men rose and fell in the swells all around him, with the dead, the nearly dead, sea trunks, barrels, and broken wreckage all being propelled landward. Francisco raised his head, grimacing as his beard caught between the planks of his life-saving raft and saw dozens of men already lined along the strand above the breaking surf. Heartened, he began to paddle with his arms, desperate to join those safely ashore. By the time he had closed within 200 yards of shore, a cold hand had closed around his heart. The men waiting along the shore were not Spaniards. As he would write from Antwerp, three years later, in 1591. While I was regarding this solemn scene, I did not know what to do, nor what means to adopt, as I did not know how to swim, and the waves and storm were very great. And on the other hand, the land and the shore were full of enemies, who went about jumping and dancing with delight at our misfortunes, And when any one of our people reached the beach, two hundred savages and other enemies fell upon him and stripped him of what he had on until he was left in his naked skin. They betook themselves to the shore to plunder and break open money chests and whatever they might find, at which work more than two thousand savages and Englishmen who were stationed in garrisons near there took part. With great exertion, I righted myself upon my supporting timber, and supplicating Our Lady of Antenar, there came four waves, one after the other, and without knowing how or knowing how to swim, they cast me upon the shore, where I emerged, unable to stand, all covered with blood and very much injured. Chattering with the cold, which was severe, I stopped for the night in a deserted place and was forced to lie down upon some rushes on the ground with the great pain I suffered in my leg. A Spanish gentleman came up to me, a very nice young fellow, quite naked, and he was so dazed that he could not speak, not even to tell me who he was, and at that time, which would be about nine o'clock at night, the wind was calm, and the sea subsiding. I was then wet through to the skin, dying with pain and hunger. Managing to rest a little, I began to doze and when fast asleep at about one o'clock in the night. I was disturbed by a great noise of men on horseback. There were more than two hundred of them who were going to plunder and destroy the ships. I turned to call my companion to see if he slept, and found he was dead. At the dawn of day I began to walk, little by little, searching for a monastery of monks that I might repair to it or might recover in it as best I could, which I arrived at with much trouble and toil. I found it deserted, and the church and images of the saints burned and completely ruined, and twelve Spaniards hanging within the church by the act of the Lutheran English. I sallied forth speedily and betook myself to a road which lay through a great wood. When I had gone by it for the matter of a mile, I met with a woman of more than eighty years of age, a rough savage, who was carrying off five or six cows to hide them in that wood so that the English who had come to stop in her village might not take them. As she saw me, she stopped and recognized me and said to me, Thou Spain? I said yes to her by signs and that I had been shipwrecked. She began to lament much and to weep, making me signs that I was near her house, but not to go there, as there were numerous enemies in it, and they had cut the heads off many Spaniards. Hello there, I'm Brian Halpin, and welcome to The Time Before We Were White. Part 2. Forty Shades of Irish A curious number of Americans, Southern Appalachians especially, like to refer to themselves or extended family members as being Black Irish. There are Facebook discussion groups catering to Appalachian Americans with tens of thousands of members, and almost weekly a so-called expert pops up assuring other members that the Black Irish are a thing. And that thing is usually this. Loads of Irish people have black eyes, with dark hair and a dark complexion. They come from Spanish sailors stranded on Irish coasts during the naval retreat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. These sailors intermarried with local Irish girls, This oft-repeated folk history, and the assertion that large sections of the native Irish population are dark in complexion due to this, is of course utter claptrap. Just ask Francisco de Cuellar what happened to Spanish sailors. Here is some historical background. During the 1500s, English or Anglo-Norman claims to kingship in Ireland, made way back in 1172 by Henry II of England, were little more than wishful thinking. Only Dublin and its immediate environs were actually under London's control and subject to English common law. This part of Eastern Ireland, on the Irish Sea, was called the Pale. The word Pale when not referring to the average Irish complexion, is an old word for a wooden post or a fence supported by wooden posts and is related to our modern words palisade. The extent of Anglo or Anglo-Norman Dublin was marked by such a pale or palings and most of the island of Ireland outside these territorial markers was still held by Gaelic and Cambro-Norman warlords, chieftains, and regional kings. This is the source of the colonialist and quasi-racist expression beyond the pale. To live inside the pale was to live under English law, to be part of the so-called civilized world. Those outside the pale were seen and treated as benighted savages which was rich, considering that the Irish had lived under a highly codified legal system known as Brehon Law for centuries before the existence of English common law. And it was Irish Christian missionaries who had done so much to preserve scholarship and literacy during late antiquity and the early Middle Ages, bringing Christianity to the pagan English. This later Tudor, othering of the Irish as savages, was nothing but a mental trick for justifying land theft, and the same mental trick would be used scarcely 20 years later to justify English treatment of the indigenous peoples of North America near the English colony at Jamestown. In the truest sense of the comparison, the Irish were a practice run for what would soon befall the Powhatan confederacy and other indigenous American peoples. The ancestors of Ireland's Welsh Norman nobility, otherwise known as Cambro-Normans, had arrived during the 12th century as mercenaries and warlords. By Elizabethan times, not only were they holders of much land outside the pale, but many of these old Norman families had been intermarrying with indigenous Gaelic families for centuries. The imprint left by these people can clearly be seen in the number of surnames now considered Irish, but originally of Norman provenance. Barry, Bellew, Burke, Darcy, Fitzgerald, FitzMorris, Keating, Lacey, Nugent, Roach, Taff, and many others. Far from the seat of crown authority in London, these Normans who had gone native in Ireland were powerful, wealthy, and largely autonomous. And English monarchs did not like it. Successive Tudor monarchs during the mid to late 1500s, Mary I and her half-sister Elizabeth I, sought to extend the English monarchy's power and forms of governance over the entire island of Ireland. Men such as Sir William Fitzwilliam, Lord Deputy of Ireland under Elizabeth I, were ruthless operators in this colonialist enterprise. This branch of the Norman Fitzwilliams was not from the Irish Norman nobility. Their seat of power was in the north of England, in Yorkshire. Sir William Fitzwilliam's execution of the Catholic Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, at the behest of her cousin, the Protestant Queen Elizabeth I, was the final straw in the deteriorating relations between Catholic Spain and Protestant England. This act would in fact precipitate Spain's decision to launch the Spanish Armada, an attempted, full-scale invasion of England. So when Francisco de Cuellar pitched up on a shore in Connacht in 1588, Elizabeth's regional governor there, Sir Richard Bingham, was already on a constant war footing with local Gaelic leaders. English and mercenary garrisons were in a state of paranoid and fevered preparation, ready to meet with extreme violence any attempt by Spain to land soldiers on Irish soil as a sort of backdoor into England. Any Spaniard found in Connacht was liable to summary execution. Any Irish person caught sheltering Spanish survivors of the Armada catastrophe in Connacht would also have been liable to summary execution. The Irish peasantry were already reeling from years of war being waged against them by the English. Crops and villages being regularly burnt had left many Gaels homeless, starving, ill-clothed, destitute or dead. This is why many locals in late 16th century Carberry, present-day County Sligo, were only too ready to plunder and loot Spanish shipwrecks and sailors, in what must have seemed like a rare godsend. The idea that these sailors might be stripped of their clothing and belongings on a beach, only to be taken afterwards into local hill camps and homes where they would be protected, reclothed and fed by a ragged and hungry Irish population, is a scenario well beyond credibility. To then think that these same impoverished people would risk imprisonment or death to marry their daughters off to landless foreigners who would then go on to produce a new ethnic group called the Black Irish right under the noses of English garrisons. (laughs) Well, that is not only hard to believe, it is simply absurd. Clearly, There must be other reasons for the existence of people called the Black Irish in America. And to uncover these reasons, we will first need to understand the nature of the Irish population of Ireland. Then we need to examine which groups of these Irish actually emigrated to America. And finally, what these groups of immigrants did once they got there. 31 million or about 1 in 10 Americans, claim Irish ancestry. This isn't all that surprising, as the first Irish arrived in North America with the settlers at Jamestown in 1607. The last Irish immigrants arrived about five minutes ago. But down the ages, there have been people of many different ancestral backgrounds who would eventually be called Irish. Let's walk through the four main population groups to settle the island of Ireland. Group one, the prehistoric Irish and the Gaels, from about 12,500 years before present to the Viking invasions. Humans have been in Ireland continuously since the end of the last ice age, about 12,500 years ago. Just like the rest of Europe, Ireland saw later waves of immigration replace or absorb these earlier upper Palaeolithic and Mesolithic hunter-gatherer populations. Around 6,400 years ago, Neolithic or New Stone Age incomers began to introduce a range of new technologies and cultural practices to Ireland, including cereal farming, livestock husbandry, weaving, pottery and most notably, the building of elaborate stone monuments, the earliest of these being court tombs, with passage, portal and wedge tombs becoming more common somewhat later. The use of metal in the form of copper began with another wave of immigrants around 4,500 years ago, and these same people, known to archaeologists as the Bell Beaker culture, eventually took up bronze metallurgy about 500 years after this. The Irish Bronze Age was a time of prosperity and complex social organisation, and Ireland enjoyed one of the wealthiest and most highly developed civilizations in Europe at the time. It is worth pointing out that all waves of immigration to Ireland during the Neolithic and Bronze Ages arrived via Iberia modern Spain and Portugal. Neolithic farming people from Iberia had deep ancestry from the Near and Middle East, while Bronze Age people from Iberia were descended from groups who had spread from the steppelands of Western Asia, near enough to modern-day Ukraine. Until recently, scholars tended to think that Ireland's Celtic language, Gaelic, arrived with yet another wave of immigrants during the Irish Iron Age, just two and a half thousand years ago. But now, the oldest iron artefacts found in Ireland have been dated to a few centuries earlier, suggesting a population continuum. In other words, an ancient Indo-European Proto-Gaelic language may well have arrived with the aforementioned early copper and bronze age immigrants from Iberia. This would make the Gaelic language in Ireland of far greater antiquity than previously thought. Alternatively, the Gaelic language may have been introduced well after the Bronze Age by small groups of conquering elites who imposed their language and culture, but few of their actual genes on the existing population of Ireland, much as the English would do later, between 1600 and 1900. Whatever the case, there is little doubt that Ireland did see at least some additional immigration during the Iron Age between 2,500 and 1,500 years ago, probably from Britain, Iberia and the Mediterranean world. But even after these waves of immigration, the overall genetic profile of the Irish, especially in the west of Ireland, remained largely the same for the past four and a half thousand years. Setting aside questions of origins, there is another point which must be stressed and then repeated again and again. The people of Ireland never called themselves Celts. The pre-Roman peoples of Britain never called themselves Celts. The Gauls of the place later known as France never called themselves Celts. This term, first used by Georgian and Victorian antiquarians, was based on the Greek word for peoples living north and west of the Alps in ancient times. People the Greeks called the Keltoi. We now know this term is virtually meaningless in any useful ethnic or historical sense. 18th and 19th century scholars had noticed the similarities between the language and art of late Iron Age Ireland and the languages and much earlier art of so-called Celtic Central Europe and leapt to the conclusion that these were the same people. Lumping groups of people together based on broad linguistic relationships and shared tastes in decorative art is nonsensical. Many people in India today speak English and drink Coca-Cola, but this scarcely makes the people of Gujarat and the people of Tennessee part of the same ethnic group. An ethnic group of people called Celts does not exist and has never existed except in the minds of later people. The word Celtic does have some use for describing a family of Indo-European languages, much as we recognize Germanic and Romance languages. The Italians, French, Portuguese and Spanish All speak closely related languages influenced by Latin, and all of these countries have cathedrals and use the Latin alphabet, yet we do not refer to them collectively as Romans, as if they were all the same people. At least there were once people calling themselves Romans, something which cannot be said about Celts. The use of the word Celtic to describe the populations of ancient Britain and Gaul, and the present populations of Wales, Cornwall, Scotland, Brittany, the Isle of Man, Galicia and Ireland, as if they were and are all somehow part of the same people, is inaccurate at best. And at worst, it is new-agerish, fake-Druidic, stonehengery hokum. to Group 2, Irish of Viking descent, 795 to 1169 AD. Although the Irish were commercially interconnected with the Roman and Atlantean world, their Irish Gaelic culture would continue relatively uninterrupted until the age of the Vikings. While the Vikings are seen in the popular imagination mostly as warlike raiders, this only tells the story of the earliest Vikings, who were little more than Scandinavian pirates. As the 10th century wore on, piracy and raiding in England, Scotland and Ireland from Longforts gave way to the building of proper trading stations and settlements almost any Irish river estuary where a longboat could navigate, evidence has been found of Scandinavian settlement. The Kingdom of Dublin was created by Vikings in the year 841. Cork, Limerick, Waterford and Wexford also began as fortified Viking trade settlements. While the English would see most of their kingdoms plundered, Overrun, extorted, or controlled by Scandinavians between the years 800 and 1066, the same did not happen in Ireland. Various fiefdoms and minor kingdoms regularly changed hands between Viking and Gael, with most Vikings eventually forming part of settled communities and becoming Gaelicized in their language and culture. Many surnames born by Irish people today hint at this Gaelic Scandinavian ancestry. Macauliffe, Higgins, Doyle, and McLaughlin are a few of these names. Group 3. Irish of Norman Descent While the Irish and Viking elites were to and fro in their battles for supremacy in Ireland, over the Irish Sea to the east, the ongoing struggles between the English and Vikings was brought to an abrupt end in 1066 by a warlord from France, William, Duke of Normandy, a man later known as... William the Conqueror. As his noble title suggests, William was a Norman, essentially a descendant of Vikings who had first plundered and then settled in northern France. The clue to their earlier identity is in the words Norman and Normandy, these being Franco-Norse terms meaning Northman and Place of the Northmen. These Northmen, or Normans, had lived for generations on coastal land ceded to them by Frankish kings, with England visible in the distance on a clear day. Just as the Vikings in Ireland had become Gaelicized over time, the Vikings in Normandy had become Frenchified, to use an unscholarly term. Using heavy cavalry, followed by the rapid construction of Mott and Bailey fortresses, these Normans were quickly able to overwhelm English defenders, occupying much of England and Wales within a few decades. And it was warlord Normans from Wales, such as Richard de Clare, the Earl of Pembroke, also known as Strongbow, who landed in Ireland in 1170 soon taking possession of many Hiberno-Norse towns, such as Dublin and Waterford. Confederations of Gaels assaulted and besieged these Norman-held towns, but the situation eventually resolved into a stalemate. Norman and Irish elites eventually began to intermarry, and for the next 350 years, Ireland remained a patchwork of Gaelic, Hiberno-Norse, Anglo-Norman, and Hiberno-Norman polities. These petty chiefs, minor kings, and regional lords of places like Leinster, Ulster, Tyrconnell, Connacht, Munster, Brethny, and Meath were subjects of England on paper, but not on the ground. That is, until the Tudors and Stuarts came along during the late 1500s and early 1600s. Which brings us to Group 4, the Plantation Irish and the Anglo-Irish Ascendancy. The beginning of an outright English assault on Irish sovereignty began in the mid-1500s with Plantation, a form of ethnic cleansing in which English-sponsored capitalists and speculators were allocated land grants in Ireland and encouraged to plant English settlers on Gaelic and sometimes Hiberno-Norman territories. The earliest Tudor plantation in Ireland was in the Irish Midland counties of Offaly and Leash in 1556. These two counties were renamed King and Queen counties for Mary I and her husband Philip II of Spain. Colonization here was not a great success due to local insurgencies, but was eventually completed in 1578, following the massacre of the O'Moore families. The English used a tactic which they would soon employ in America, inviting warring parties to peace talks, and then slaying them. Classic. The next attempted plantation was at Carycouraghy, near Cork Harbour, in 1568. This attempt to set up a colony was also a failure at first. The head of a deeply Gaelicized old Cambro-Norman family named Gerald Fitzgerald, Earl of Desmond, rebelled against Tudor attempts to gain control of half a million acres of land in Munster, Fitzgerald forces had some early successes, including the destruction of this colony, but resistance would eventually end in tears. The first attempt to create an English colony in Northern Ireland took place in East Ulster between 1571 and 1575, This early attempt at planting English colonies in Ulster was abandoned after only three or four years, but not before the English had committed atrocities like the massacre of Irish women, children, and elderly at Rathlin Island. Again, classy as ever. A second attempt to plant English and Welsh colonies in Munster followed the crushing of the Second Desmond Rebellion in 1583. Most of these settlements were destroyed by the Irish in 1598 during the Nine Years' War, but these colonies were back with a vengeance after English victory in 1603. And finally came the second attempt at planting English settlers in Northern Ireland, which began with the Ulster Plantation from 1606 onwards. We'll focus for a moment here on this plantation of Ulster because it had the most direct bearing on subsequent Irish history and early emigration from Ulster to America. First of all, where and what exactly is Ulster? Ulster is a province in the northernmost part of the island of Ireland and prior to the first Norman invasion of Ireland in 1169, it was ruled by the O'Neills. Norman power in Ulster waned quickly, and Ulster remained the most Irish of all provinces up until the end of the Nine Years' War with England. The province is now comprised of the counties of Antrim, Armagh, Cavan, Derry, Donegal, Down, Fermanagh, Monaghan and Tyrone, with only Cavan, Donegal and Monaghan currently governed by the Republic of Ireland. The plantation or outright colonization of Ulster by the English began in earnest at the end of the Nine Years' War. Beginning in 1593, five years after the Spanish Armada, and ending in early 1603, the Nine Years' War was the last great concerted stand of the indigenous Irish against the foreign conquest and takeover of their land. As someone who spends many hours every day of his life immersed in writing and reading about history, words can scarcely begin to describe the brutality of this conflict. The Elizabethan and Stuart eras were an age of poets and monsters. Playwrights like Shakespeare and Marlowe entertained the London masses with tales drawing upon the violence of this age. A poet like Edmund Spencer could sit on his newly stolen colonial estate in Southwest Ireland, writing poetry dedicated to his fairy queen in London, while all around him his countrymen Brutalized the non combatant Irish population with famine and death. Consider these words, written by Spencer in 1596, as a sort of prospectus for new English settler colonizers in Ireland, detailing in dialogue form how the civilian Irish population had fared during the war. Ere one year and a half they were brought to to such wretchedness as that any stony heart would have rued the same Out of every corner of the wood and glens they came creeping forth upon their hands for their legs could not bear them They looked anatomies of death They spoke like ghosts crying out of their graves They did eat of the carrions happy where they could find them yea, and one another soon after, in so much as the very carcasses they spared not to scrape out of their graves, and if they found a plot of watercresses or shamrocks, there they flocked as to a feast for the time, yet not able long to continue therewithal, that in a short space there were none almost left, and a most populous and plentiful country, suddenly left void of man or beast. Carrions, by the way, meant corpses. Spencer's close friend and wealthy neighbour in the province of Munster, Walter Raleigh, also wrote poetry in between acts of unspeakable savagery committed as a soldier. A college dropout far better known as a courtier and favourite of Queen Elizabeth, no allowances for just the way things were back then can hide or excuse the fact that Raleigh was a butcherer of humans. Prisoners of war, women, children, it didn't matter. Bodies of the slain Irish were desecrated, with heads lopped off and sent on wagons to Dublin in order to be placed on spikes around the city as a form of psychological warfare and as a clear warning to any recalcitrant Irish. Then, and now, politicians and war leaders take great pains to disguise their real ambitions behind false moral justifications for violence. An outlier in this regard, Raleigh was at least upfront about things. Quote, The miseries of war are never so bitter and many as when a whole nation, or a great part of it, forsaking their own seeds, labour to root out the established possessions of another land, making room for themselves. Fighting in Ulster a couple of hundred miles to the north, English commander Arthur Chichester reported after one scorched earth raid. We have killed, burnt and spoiled. Within four miles of Dungannon, we have killed above 100 people of all sorts. Besides such as were burnt, how many I know not. For we spared none of what quality or sex soever, and it hath bred much terror in the people. Many locals were reduced to cannibalism. Men fighting under Chichester reported coming upon five orphaned starving children eating a dead woman. Their mother A perfect storm of bad weather, bad harvests, and war soon caused famine all over Ireland, but especially in Ulster. Fines Morrison, secretary to Lord Mountjoy, another commander of English forces in Ulster, would write, No spectacle was more frequent in towns and ditches, and especially in the wasted countries, than to see multitudes of these poor people dead, with their mouths all colored green by eating metals. At least 60,000, and probably closer to 100,000, men, women, and children, are believed to have starved to death in the province of Ulster alone. Not as an unfortunate side effect of conflict, but due to the intentional use of famine and other scorched-earth tactics as weapons of war. The English Exchequer was nearly bankrupted by this war, which meant that they had no way to fund the plantation of Ulster with government money. This situation meant that private capitalist speculators were more or less given free rein to colonize much of the land taken from the Irish, with land being offered at pennies per acre. It is by no means a poor comparison to see Ulster during the 1600s as similar in many ways to the Appalachian frontier of the late 1700s and the Wild West of the 1800s in America. In the post-war free-for-all, those with money and connections, corporations and wealthy elites, were able to gain control of large tracts of land. These people would in turn advertise for settlers, much as land speculators and railway barons later did in the American West. Settlers and manual labourers piled in from England, Wales, Scotland, and elsewhere. Most of the English were from northern counties and the border region with Scotland. Most of the Scots, but not all, were from the lowlands and southwest of Scotland, while many of the Scots who settled in County Fermanagh were from the borders region with England. The Welsh, who were often the forgotten settlers of Ulster, were of course only a stone's throw from Ireland to begin with. Another large Irish rebellion would take place in Ulster in 1641, but would eventually be put down by none other than Oliver Cromwell, nemesis of the Catholic Irish. A man we'll hear more about a little later. The indigenous Irish did not disappear. Far from it. But they were made second and third class citizens in their own country for the next 250 years under what is known as the Anglo-Irish Ascendancy. Ulster and the rest of Ireland came under the firm control of mostly Protestant English, Welsh and Scottish settlers and their descendants, who guarded their privileged access to political and economic powers zealously. Other minority groups moved among this mix of English, Irish, Scots and Welsh, however. A fact which will have some bearing on the identity of the Black Irish. Part 3 The problem of the Scots-Irish. If the word Celt is the most overused and misused term in European history, then the most overused and misused term in American history, right up to the present day, is the word race. Probably the second most overused and poorly understood term in America is the ethnic descriptor Scots-Irish. And just like the word race, the term Scots-Irish has become so overwhelmingly part of American self-identity in some quarters that to call it out as a dubious ethnic identity gets about the same notice as a low whisper in a thunderstorm. When anyone actually does take notice, They tend to be self-identified Scots-Irish-Americans, a clique who can become extremely defensive and sometimes downright aggressive about their blood. And why wouldn't they? Any non-academic history of 18th century America will try to assure the reader that the Scots-Irish are a special breed. That the Scots-Irish were born fighting. That the Scots-Irish were the most important soldiers during the American Revolution and the War of 1812. That the Scots-Irish were the pioneeringest pioneers at the bleeding edge of the American frontier. That Southern Appalachian culture, past and present, is pretty much the legacy of doughty Scots-Irish settlers, whether feuding, serving in the military, or distilling whiskey. Everything which makes Southern Appalachian culture distinct is claimed as Scots-Irish. Religion, music, dance traditions, you name it. All of this, and more, has been repeated So often, by so many, that it has become almost a universally received wisdom. A foundational story as unshakable as America's belief in its own exceptionalism. And just like most foundational stories told by peoples around the world, the story of America and her Scots-Irish is a story assembled and composed from gilded half-truths, exaggerations, one-sided distortions, agenda-driven propaganda, misunderstandings, and not a few outright lies. Much of this fetishization of Scots-Irish identity clearly lies in these people being imagined as the right kind of American ancestors to claim, In the anti-English years after the American Revolution. For American country folks, a Scots-Irish identity ticked all the right boxes. White, non-elite, Protestant, and supposedly more down-to-earth and manly, if you like, than the effete English. This elevating of the Scots-Irish onto a pedestal overlooking and commandeering the narrative landscape of early American history, especially southern Appalachian history, is so all-pervasive and problematic that we will probably need to dedicate an entire podcast episode to the subject sometime in the near future. Still, a few things about these so-called Scots-Irish must be made clear now before we can continue with our search for the Black Irish. Most Americans and Appalachians who claim a Scots-Irish identity base this on a wished-for ethnic and cultural continuity, which simply did not survive the American expansionist project. Besides, people from Ulster arriving in Pennsylvania and elsewhere during the 1700s were not an homogeneous group to begin with, nor did they marry only among themselves. Some communities did form during earliest days, as can be seen in the many Ulster place names being given to settlements, especially in Pennsylvania. One of these groups or communities, who were definitely cohesive and clearly Ulster-Presbyterian, were the Paxton Rangers, a vicious and bigoted gang of squatters and settlers along the Susquehanna River of Pennsylvania during the 1760s. The so-called Paxton Boys and their community encroached on backcountry land, which had been set aside by treaty for the peaceful Susquehanna and Conestoga people decades earlier. Without even attempting peaceful cohabitation, this Paxton militia engaged in outrageous acts of violence toward indigenous men, women, and children, with Benjamin Franklin himself writing that the Conestoga would have been safe among any other people on earth, no matter how primitive, except for white savages from Pextang and Donegal. This early cultural cohesiveness of Ulster folk in Pennsylvania lost a lot of traction among those settlers who headed southwards in Conestoga wagons following the long grey trail into the backcountry of western Virginia and North Carolina in search of cheap or free land. Many people claiming Scots-Irish identity today make the mistake of presuming that anyone who left Ulster for America during the 1700s was Scots-Irish, or to use an even clumsier American term, Scotch-Irish. By Scots-Irish, they mean those Protestant settlers of Ulster who were in Ireland long enough to be seen as a distinct group. No longer really Scottish, but quite separate from the Irish-Irish these self-identified Scots-Irish-Americans are usually unaware that the largest waves of Scottish immigration into Ulster didn't even occur as part of the plantation of Ulster during the early 1600s. The largest waves of immigration from Scotland into Ulster actually took place almost a hundred years later, during the 1690s. The earliest settlers or colonizers entering Ulster just after 1607 in the aftermath of the Nine Years' War were part of an aggressive English policy of turning Ireland into a Protestant kingdom. And those earliest settlers, from wealthy speculators right down to common laborers, came from England, Wales, Scotland, France, Flanders, and elsewhere. The immigrants arriving much later during the immigration boom of the 1690s weren't even really a direct part of this early colonization project. Colonization, or plantation, had already been largely accomplished. So later settlers were often just refugees from famines and other calamities occurring in Scotland at the time. These famine migrants were drawn from many different communities, not just from Scottish Presbyterians, and we shall meet some of these in due course. Some Americans are in fact aware that not everyone who made the trip from Ulster to America came from a Scottish Protestant background, and many of these people have their own origin myth. In this version of American frontier history, most of their Ulster ancestors are the descendants of lawless Scottish and English border reavers. Many of the germ theory ideas put forward in books like *Albion's Seed or Born Fighting, in which arguments are made for a continuum of this borderer culture in southern Appalachia, are demonstrably flawed in the extreme and in some ways can seem little more than quasi-eugenic, semi-cloaked, white-libertarian propaganda. The actual number of families in southern Appalachia which can be reliably traced directly to border reaver people of the 16th and 17th century is a vanishingly small percentage of the overall ethnic makeup of the region. But whichever community, religious grouping, ethnicity, or cultural traditions they came from, it is clear that many people of Scottish or English backgrounds leaving Ulster for America during the 1700s had not been in Ireland long enough to have formed any new ethnic group. Many were simply first, second, at most third generation Scottish and Northern English economic migrants. Not fighting border reavers. Just plain old impoverished economic migrants. Such economic migrants and war refugees had moved back and forth between southwest Scotland and Ulster for centuries. The sea crossing from Scotland to Larne is less than 40 miles, after all. These migrants did not see themselves as Scots-Irish, and these migrants did not refer to themselves as such. When pressed, they simply called themselves Scots or Irish. Not both. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of people from the Scottish Presbyterian tradition did leave Ulster for America. That much is true. But so did a lot of Ulster people of Northern English extraction. So did a lot of Ulster people of Scottish Catholic and Irish Catholic background. Even many of the Northern English and Welsh settlers of Ulster were not what they might appear at first glance. Of all the people who left Ireland for America during the 1700s, probably never more than 55% of these were the Ulster Presbyterians of yore. The overall number of Ulster Protestants entering America during the 1700s has in fact been constantly and systematically overstated. And the number of these Ulster Protestants who left places like Pennsylvania to settle in southern Appalachia as a percentage of the overall Appalachian population has also been grossly overestimated. For many reasons, almost none of them good. The simple fact of the matter is that Southern Appalachia is one of the most ethnically mixed places in the USA, and almost no one with deep roots there can legitimately claim that Scots-Irish forms the greater part of their genetic inheritance. It's almost as if many mixed ethnic people want to throw a big white blanket of Scots-Irishness over every hill and holler in southern Appalachia. People like J.D. Vance, author of the notorious punching-down book Hillbilly Elegy, have absorbed the ideas of writers like David Hackett Fisher, author of *Albion's Seed, and used these ideas as a springboard for the construction of an imaginary Scots-Irish identity. Here's how it works. Pick a remote ancestor from your family tree with the ethnic identity you prefer. Ignore the fact that this remote ancestor represents only a minuscule percentage of your genetic inheritance. In Vance's case, he would like to believe that he is Scots-Irish. Perhaps because in the imagination of many insecure white American males, such a background speaks to their idealized white Christian nationalist aspirations and preferred virtues. Fighting for honor, Scots-Irish. Stubborn and independent, Scots-Irish. Loyal to a fault, why? That's a Scots-Irish thing. I'll stop right there and let you hear quotes from Vance himself in this excerpt from his book Hillbilly Elegy. In travelling across America, the Scots-Irish have consistently blown my mind as far and away the most persistent and unchanging regional subculture in the country. Their family structures... Religion and politics and social lives all remain unchanged compared to the wholesale abandonment of tradition that's occurred nearly everywhere else. This distinctive embrace of cultural tradition comes along with many good traits. An intense sense of loyalty, a fierce dedication to family and country, but also many bad ones. We do not like outsiders or people who are different from us, whether the difference lies in how they look, how they act, or most important, how they talk. To understand me, you must understand that I am a Scots-Irish hillbilly at heart. This sort of nonsense is problematic and dangerous on multiple levels. Number one, Appalachia is not primarily a scots-irish and vance certainly isn't primarily scots-irish by genetic inheritance not even close number two the persistence of certain cultural traits in 21st century appalachia has f all to do with any continuity of a scots-irish subculture from the 1700s Every single trait Vance names might equally apply to Appalachians of Welsh, German, English, Scottish, Dutch, Swedish, Jewish, Romany, or indeed Cherokee or African ancestry. There is one aspect of this culture seen in America which might be described as being especially Ulster Protestant, but self identified Scots Irish people rarely mention it this would be a familiarity with the actual mechanics of colonialism and how to use violence to maintain economic supremacy over a disenfranchised indigenous population the scots-irish did it in ulster and they did it on the appalachian frontier number three this elevation of traits supposedly unique to the Scots-Irish is just another more subtle face of an older American belief in race and race eugenics. Instead of attributing certain local traits and behaviors to the complex cultural environment created during the violence of the frontier era, people like Vance just call it innate Scots-Irishness. Instead of looking at Appalachia's current problems through the lens of racism, bad economic policies, poor infrastructure, corporate pillage of resources, and a legacy of poor education going back to frontier times, let's just call it Scots-Irish hillbilly culture. In other words, Vance and other charlatans like him Even when using the word culture instead of race, they actually want to believe that certain things belong to certain groups. That certain things are in their blood. This sort of fake history, this cherry-picking of ancestors, this claiming of true American values as being mainly synonymous with his people this this utter bullshit quite frankly it goes to the very heart of the current social and ideological divisions seen in the USA this is why politicians are banning books this is why american history teachers are being put under pressure of new legislation why florida's current governor now endorses new history books claiming that African-American slaves actually benefited from enslavement in certain ways. White Christian nationalists want to own American identity itself. And when the facts don't match their fake identity, they just lie or attack the person laughing at the emperor's new clothes. I've given so much time to the so-called Scots-Irish because many, many people who claim this identity in Appalachia are fully as multi-ethnic as anyone else there. People like J.D. Vance, who is happy to embrace a scant portion of his ethnic ancestry to suit an ideological political narrative, while ignoring his closer ties to the mixed-ethnic Carmel Indians and other brown people of eastern Kentucky. This does a great, a serious disservice to the complexity and fascinating real history of the region. Members of the Before We Were White podcast discussion forum can find academic papers laying all of this out in detail in our show notes. But this podcast will mostly dispense with the term Scots-Irish and stick with the less contentious term people from Ulster when mentioning those who arrived in America on ships which had departed from ports in Northern Ireland. At this point, many listeners might be thinking, Okay, so you've mentioned the fact that Ireland has a mixed population of people descended from Gaels, Vikings, Normans, English, Welsh, and Scottish people. You've explained how being Irish is more complicated than people might think. But all of these people were still... Northwest European white folks, right? Where do the black Irish come into this? For the answer to that, please join us in a week or two for part two of Black Paddy Wackery. This episode of Before We Were White was written and produced by me, Brian Halpin. Additional music by Steph West, Dave McLaughlin, Ray Cohn and Rodney Lancashire. This week, we reached the milestone of over 10,000 listeners. This is humbling because our growing audience is due to every single listener out there and the unstinting belief shown by some very special supporters old and new my deepest gratitude goes to Leanne and Jane who've been there from the very beginning big thanks to Pam, Elizabeth, Karen, John and Sandy from our Patreon page and all the others who have supported us on buy me a coffee and paypal and finally a special fist bump to rihanna and tara who have championed this podcast in ways which have exposed it to a bigger audience until next time goodbye